The more things change, the more they stay the same. If you do not believe this cute little aphorism, you should dig into the ancient commentary of the classics, where you will find thinkers that lead you to ask, how does one become a farmer? Welcome to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with your host, Michael Olson. And now, get ready for one hour of What's Eating What Radio. Well, hello out there. You are tuned into the 1290th edition of the Food Chain Radio Show. Or hey, perhaps you're among our friends over there in Monaco who are tuned into the podcast at metrofarm.com. Well, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome aboard. I am Michael Olson, your host for this hour of What's Eating What? Folks, they are called classics because they do not wear out with time, even with thousands of years of time. The writers of the classics captured life as they saw it with the words of their day. If one is able to translate those ancient words into today's words, or get someone else to do the translating, one can see that the more things change, the more they stay the same. For one example, look back, way back, to what the shepherd Hesiod had to say nearly 3,000 years ago about character. The best man of all thinks out everything for himself, mulling over what is better later on and in the end. And yet good too is he who heeds words well spoken by another. But whoever neither thinks for himself nor listens to another when he takes something to heart is a useless person. Now I ask, now I ask, has the wisdom of that observation dimmed over the nearly three millenniums since it was written? Though there are some who think there is now no such thing as a useless person, they most likely have never been a farmer. And speaking of farming, the ancients did a lot of writing on the subject, and as I thumbed through the themes presented in How to Be a Farmer, an ancient guide to the life on the land, I see many, if not most all, of the themes I have written and talked about in my travels up and down today's food chain. To see how, the more things change, the more they stay the same, let's open How to Be a Farmer and see how what was said about farming in ancient times is pretty much the way farming is today. Here to help us select from all the themes, translate them from the Greek and Latin into today's American English, and introduce them to us, we have, from Francis Cote de Jour, the author of How to Be a Farmer, An Ancient Guide to Life on the Land, M.D. Usher, farmer and professor of classical languages and literature at the University of Vermont. Well, Professor, welcome to the food chain. Thank you very much, and plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose, as they say around here. Well, good. <laughs> the more things change, the more they change, they stay, they stay the same. There you go. So it's a pretty much and of a universal thought, isn't it? It was originally said of fashion, but um, I think it applies to ideas as well. Let us know which came first, the professor of classics or the farmer? Uh, yes, the chicken and the egg question. That's a tough one to answer. Um, all my life I've been doing things with my hands and uh, before I even went to college in the first place, I aspired to be a carpenter and actually trained as one in Germany. Um, and then only after that, um, and after I met my, my, my now wife, did I um, pursue 
sort of the academic realm. And um, so I guess I guess to answer honestly, I think the, the, the idea of labor and work close to the land and working with your hands came first. Um, but there was a big uh, interstitial space in between called graduate school and, you know, the responsibilities of being a professor that have taught me how to balance the two. But um, in terms of the chicken and egg question, the farming or the aspiration to farm came first. There you go. But it was a woman that made you do it, right? You mean, what, what would that be, my wife? Yes. <laughs> yes, uh, a woman is always the, the source of a, a face that launches a, a thousand ships in all of our lives. There you go. So, yeah, I just actually got a call, got off a WhatsApp call with my wife uh, less than 10 minutes ago. Um, she's, of course, holding down the farm right now while I'm here in Marseille and uh, talking to you where the sun shines, it seems, every day. And she's coping with a... Uh, a lame bullock right now. So we were we were trying to negotiate over WhatsApp while she was out in the field, uh, how to get a ram who was in with the the cows at this point out, so she could try to move the bullock out. So she de- deserves a lot of credit for in a lot of ways for uh, what we do. Well, I was going to ask you, what is a, a farmer like you doing in the Côte d'Azur of France during yeah. the har- harvest season in Vermont? Well, so um, one of the benefits of being an academic is that sometimes you get uh, nice scholarships or fellowships or support for your research. You don't always do that. And uh, I was lucky enough to get a fellowship to the French Institute for Advanced Study located here in Marseille. There's several uh, around France at the universities in France. Um, This one here, um, I'm resident at for the year. Uh, I won't be here nonstop throughout the course of the year. I'll, I'll need to go back several times to manage things on the home front and help out with, um, especially the winter chores in Vermont uh, on the farm can be intimidating and substantial. But uh, that's what brought me here. And I'm working on uh, projects related to, or sort of spin-off projects related to the book you described, How to Be a Farmer. Well, how did you come to write How to Be a Farmer? Because you are a farmer. You are a professor of the classics. So was it what you were reading in the classics that got you to thinking it's just like it was back then? Another great question. And, you know, there there are people in my field in classics and ancient history who specialize in ancient agriculture. And that's their, that's their shtick. I'm not actually one of those people. I'm a I'm a literature person uh, primarily. I prefer poetry to prose. I prefer philosophy to history even um, as my just uh, temperament and my, my aptitudes go. But uh, again, uh, my wife Caroline had the idea about five, six years ago that instead of living this double life as a farmer on the one hand and a academic on the other, I should try to marry those two interests and of course, when she said that, it reminded me of a poem, and that poem is by Robert Frost. And Robert Frost said that is that was his goal in life to um, unite his avocation and his vocation. And I think if you're lucky enough to be able to do that, you've got a a, a golden life. And um, so uh, that's how I got interested in kind of the ancient ideology of farming and and what. Um, you know, living close to nature in, in all respects, not just farming, but other other ways that the ancients can teach us about how we can live kind of in accordance with nature 
in a very critical time in the world's history, the planet's history, um, i.e. today. Today. Well, um, let's start this discussion off with um, how would you describe what makes a classic a classic? Oh, well, uh, the term classic refers to sort of a a category of writings. The the Latin word means fleet and uh, uh, like a naval fleet. So we have this um, uh, this fleet of, of works from antiquity that um, kind of go together because they uh, they kind of are they're, they're, they were thought at some point over the course of history and continue to be thought somehow representative and of of that that world's way of thinking and perhaps maybe even some of the best of that world's um, thinking the, the ancient world's thinking about all matters uh, scientific humanistic. Uh, artistic, and so they they came they came to be sort of like a canonical set, as as it were, and of course we just have the tip of the iceberg. There's there's much uh, in, from classical literature that doesn't survive, um, uh, and many voices that aren't heard. Um, in, what we have is primarily the work works of elites, um, but but it is quite a a, a broad swathe of of um, of uh, of worldview that we get from the classics spanning thousands of years. So that's where classics come from. Well, those of us who are not students of the classics look back and we hear the, the names mentioned uh, and they seem so distant and so strange. And um, I, I see where you wrote a kind of a personality profile of Socrates that really kind of brought, the the person to life for me would you give a, a our audience a thumbnail of who you think socrates was what was he like what was it like to have a friend named socrates nice question annoying so he was the kind of uh, friend um that would uh, challenge you and make you uncomfortable and irk you um um but he would have be he would have been reliable as well and um, somebody you could trust and perhaps confide in. But you know he was sort of a, a, a street urchin um, in Athens, and um, uh, I think you know, young people in ancient Athens particularly took to him and his methods because he was fond of showing up, you know, the habits and the the ideas of pretentious people, and uh, and reducing them to you know uh, really nothing. Um, in, in his discourse and his exchanges with them. So, yeah, Socrates, I mean, they, you know, his fellow Athenians killed him after all. He did. <laughs> so, um, he, he, did uh, he did annoy people, um, but he was relentless in his quest for truth. And as he's portrayed, especially by, by Plato, you know, he is the patron saint of philosophers, somebody who uh, just never, never gives up and is going to pursue the truth and uh, no matter what, what the consequence to himself or, or, um, you know, to others. Um, so. And the consequence, of course, was that um, he paid with the ultimate price, right? Indeed. He did indeed. Now, and, and one more quick question before we move on to some of the really interesting people that you bring to life in How to Be a Farmer. How do you entice students of today who are raised with um, video games on their cell phones? How do you entice them with the classics? Mm. Well, you know, I'm always surprised, I'll tell you the truth, Michael, that, that 
students, um, students of this generation seem to have a, a certain ennui I set in with students and technology, at least the students that I'm seeing, I've seen in the last five years in, in my courses. Um, and I teach courses on sort of uh, the backstory of sustainability in the classical world, uh, uh, backstory of sort of ecological thinking uh, in the ancient world. So maybe that some of those students are self-selecting and are drawn to that topic, but they um, they see actually the, uh, the the truth of the statement you opened the show with that the more things change, the more they stay the same. They see uh, a persistence of of validity in ancient views that uh, are relevant to them. And, and sometimes by, by, by looking back and away from something contemporary and present, uh, even if it's similar, it seems fresh and new or even exotic. And uh, it, it can mobilize you and certainly uh, give you enthusiasm to learn more. Um, and that sort of process of discovery, I find the classics are really, really good to teach with for that reason. Well, that's great. Well, when we come back, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to pick up some of the classics and some of the classic writers and learn a lot about how the more things change, the more they stay the same. Do stay tuned. Go for the great food, good people, and all the smiles. Saturday morning at the Cabrillo College Farmer's Market. Meet the local farmers who grow some of the best food in the world. Say hello to your friends and neighbors who host the best local news and talk radio on SantaCruzVoice.com. It's radio with its farmer's face on it. Saturday morning at the Cabrillo College Farmer's Market. Bring a really big shopping bag. See you. At the end of summer, certified farmer's market. Time to eat. Chef Ben here from the Back Nine Grill and Bar. With the easiest place to get to in Santa Cruz County, right off the Past Tempo exit. Inviting you to join us Monday through Thursday for our nightly specials. Like Meatloaf Monday or Taco Tuesday. Made in-house Cordon Bleu Wednesday. Burger and a Beer Special Thursday nights. And happy hour all week long with your favorite libations and half-off appetizers. We just might have the best burger in town and maybe the country, but don't take it from me. Come and make up your mind yourself. Bring the kids and the dog to the back nine's patio, or bring your special honey to a romantic dinner at one of the fireplace tables. The back nine is a great place to celebrate special occasions, either in our garden or in our banquet space. You can celebrate with up to 180 people the Back Nine is the restaurant for every occasion. And as always, looking forward to seeing you at the Nine. California coast to the fertile valleys inland. Earthwise Land Service is your land's best friend. Earthwise can clear it, mulch it, move it, sculpt it, grain it, drain it, or retain it any way you choose. Earthwise Land Service is your land's best friend. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I have some property behind my home at Larkin Valley that I've never seen. It was completely overgrown with brush and poison oak, well over 10 feet high. I wanted to have it cleared to protect my horses from wildfires, but nobody could do the job. Then I called Buck at Earthwise. Buck brought out his big brush-eating machine and turned all the brush and poison oak into mulch. It was truly transformational. Thanks to Earthwise, my property is now like a park, and I can trail ride my horses. Earthwise Land Services, your land's best friend. Bay Federal Credit Union is the local way to bank. 
For big events and major milestones, experience the most important moments of your life with a financial partner you can trust. Bay Federal will provide you the resources to enjoy a life well-planned and well-lived. If you live or work in Monterey, San Benito, or Santa Cruz counties, you already qualify to become a member. Visit BayFed.com to join us today. Bay Federal Credit Union, making a real difference for our members and communities since 1957. Equal housing lender and federally insured by the NCUA. And now, more of What's Eating What on the Food Chain with Michael Olson. Welcome back. This is the Food Chain Radio Program. Today we're... We're spanning the globe, actually. We're on the west coast of the United States and on the uh, Côte d'Azur of France. When they say Côte d'Azur, what do they mean by that, Professor? Uh, yeah, well, the Azure coast uh, on, the, on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, It's a, uh, where I am is definitely a Mediterranean culture and quite a uh, uh, multinational and multi-ethnic uh, culture, so... So it's and seemed- Marseille, Mar- Marseille, of course, is the is a very ancient city going back to a, a Greek foundation uh, in the fifth century BCE. So, so a long time, and of course, that Indeed. Mediterranean world is you know the seat of that ancient culture of Rome and Greece and and uh, and whatnot. So, and you, I note, put a lot of the original language, uh, the original language in in the book uh, how to be a farmer why did you put the the original greek and latin in the book mm. so uh these books are the are the the brainchild of uh the editor of the series rob tempio and there's a couple of things going on with them one is that they, they are trying to popularize the classics and make them accessible to modern readers and kind of repackage them to be attractive in that way both by subject matter and presentation. But um, there's also a cheeky sort of inside joke that perhaps nobody else but a classicist would would realize going on. And that is these books are a visual parody of um, a well-known series used by scholars of the classics called the Loeb Classical Library. And the format of the books, these books in this library, and this was founded by James Loeb, a, a harbor uh, worth money by James Loeb, uh, Harvard benefactor at the turn of the century, last century, um, to the, the aspiration was to include all Greek and Roman authors in translation with the original text on the facing page. Um, and the Greek ones were green and the Latin ones were red and they still are. And um, this, the, there are new loaves being published as I speak and it's all online now. So you can actually find it perhaps through your local university library if they have a subscription. So Princeton's books in this series, uh, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Readers, is a, they're a visual parody of that, both in the small size of the book and the facing pages of you know ancient language on one side on the left and then English on, on the right. The only difference is that uh, I've described these as the, the Benetton of lobes because the, the cover uh, is always a different color. They can be yellow, they can be brown, like my my book, uh, black. <laughs> so um, there's some booksellers things going on behind the scenes in this series. There you go. Always is. Somebody has to sell books. And they were selling books way back then, way back before uh, BC. Uh, and let's, let's, in that regard, let's pick up some of you, your characters and, and run with them. Let's start with uh, Hesiod, 750 yep. to 650 B.C. 
Yeah, uh, he is he is arguably our first known author um, from antiquity, from you know uh, Greek and Roman antiquity, certainly. So you know you your your listeners have probably heard of Homer. Um, you know Homer is a name that we we give to the poet of the Iliad and the Odyssey, but we have you know no reliable information about who composed both of those poems or if it was the same person and uh and what is actually what his name was even but with Hesiod it's different you know we Hesiod speaks in his first person uh in the first person you know he may be adopting a poetic persona as he conveys his information and tells the ancient Greek myths in his poetry and gives this sage advice like is in the book um how to be a farmer about how to live and how to live in an agricultural society but you know he speaks in in the first person that he is um he's a he's a real author and he probably composed these poems orally um uh, but may have written them down himself and um so he's he's the beginning of it all so he's unique in a couple of different ways both in terms of the content of his thinking but also just by virtue of the fact that he he begins the whole tradition of a class of a, begins the tradition of a classic of the classics. Well, one of the things that uh, he picks up on is he's chewing out his brother for being a ne'er do well, and instead of working on the farm and doing things that make sense, running off into town and getting into political trouble of this sort and that sort. <laughs> and yes. you know that that lends me to think of Thomas Jefferson and. Um, his his notion that the morals you, you cannot corrupt the morals of farmers because then they would fail at farming and they wouldn't be a farmer anymore and do you see anybody in your neighborhood who is a successful farmer who runs off to town and gets into these silly scrapes and and sur survives and prospers I did admit I didn't catch that last part of the question, but your, your invocation of Thomas Jefferson is pitch perfect because, um, uh, you know, Jefferson, he was steeped in the classics and his whole notion of, you know, what it means to be a gentleman farmer or a citizen farmer and, you know, an educated person. Pretty much every author that we have in, in this in this volume, How to Be a Farmer, was a was a Thomas Jefferson of some sort of his time. Uh, that is, you know, an educated elite who saw value in living close to the land and saw problems with the, the problems that come with civilization and with, you know, political, social interaction and, and preferring the one to the other. Um, what you just described um, and, and attributed to, to Jefferson's view uh, is expressed perfectly in uh, the passage of Vir from Virgil in this passage in this book. So Virgil you know, says the farmer doesn't care about politics and the, the farmer is, as you say, virtually incorruptible in that way because he doesn't care about that. He cares. He has too much else on his plate and in his mind. And Virgil presents him even as a sort of a, a, a philosopher of sorts um, uh, who understands the value not only of labor, but also knows how the world works, knows how to plant and to sow and to reap and how nature responds to human interaction with it. And, and with that, let's pick up Rufus, who suggests that uh, farming is the best job for a philosopher. So right. for, okay. tell, us, tell us about Rufus. Who, who was Rufus? 
Okay, uh, Musonius Rufus was a Stoic philosopher um, who lived in Rome uh, in the uh, first century, second century AD. And he, um, he's often called the Roman Socrates. And he's called that because he wrote in Greek, but you know, he was active in the Roman Empire. He, he's called that because his concern, the, the concern expressed in all of his writings uh, are, are mostly for ethics and how to live in the world. He's not so concerned about the technicalities of philosophy uh, that involve logic, or he's not, inter he's not so much interested in the particularities of, of physics or you know, a scientific knowledge of the world. He's ultimately interested in how to behave. So that focus on ethics is exactly what earned him the, the, the nickname, the Roman Socrates, because that was Socrates' concern. Whereas the other Stoics, um, or many other Stoics were, Stoicism by that time was quite an advanced philosophy with different branches and schools in it. They were much more concerned with, um, not much more concerned, but they were equally concerned with much more technical matter. And um, so in, in a way, Musonius represents sort of a simpler return to maybe the foundations of ethical philosophy. Um, and you're right, he does, he does give us the advice that Farming is the best job for a philosopher, um, and he gives good reasons. And there was another writer in the, in the book that talked in how to be a farmer that talked about, uh, there was a Stoic, and talked about how uh, Stoicism represented this, really a look at, at modern science. Uh, and how the earth is, it starts with the atom and the interaction with other atoms and molecules. And uh, it's kind of like a closed loop, this world we live in, in which right. everything reacts with everything else. And it really does set the stage for an environmental consciousness, does it not? I think that's a great point. And yes, I, I agree. Um, and uh, the passage from... Lucretius in the book. Um, Lucretius was an Epicurean philosopher and, and uh, an early atomist, so uh, and a materialist. He thought that the world was com comprised completely of little tiny itty bitty things that that were called atoms. That's a Greek word that means something that's a tiny little thing that's indivisible. It's uncuttable. So um, his his and Epicureanism actually offered this scientific understanding of the world, this materialist understanding of the world and of, and of life and of nature as a source of solace to uh, human beings. Because if you, under, if you understand the laws of nature and how nature works, so they argued, you, uh, you wouldn't worry about uh, things like death because you would understand that death is just part of a cycle um, of life. And it's, it's part of, that, as you say, sort of an ecological closed loop and they, they, they actually had a kind of a, what do you want to say, a talking point um, in this regard. And it was this statement that nothing comes from nothing and nothing returns to nothing. So, I mean, I, I, I don't think you could find perhaps a better description uh, or encapsulation of a closed loop system than, than that. And that was the Epicurean philosophy. And, and they saw they saw it as a source of again um, uh, solace in a world that perhaps didn't make sense, or uh, when things happen that seem of divine origin or supernatural origin that 
um, were disruptive or overwhelming to human beings. They said, no, take a step back and look at it empirically. And this is this is the way the world works. And if we understand it, we can also accept it and live happy lives. And uh, a couple of points on that. One is that it seems to be a direct correlation with one of the laws of thermodynamics, which says energy can neither be created nor destroyed. The same right. thing, isn't it? It is. It's a, a you know what what Lucretius describes in the passage in the book is uh, an anticipation of that. It's an adumbration of that. You know, and they didn't get everything right, but it, it amazes me. It never ceases to amaze me how. You know, ancient thinkers, ancient scientists really made so many advances, conceptual advances, without the aid of empirical instruments to measure and to record. Um, and uh, yeah, I just find that remarkable and outstanding. And the other point I wanted to make is that um, life on the farm is a perfect example of that closed loop in which uh, everything you know, farmer and farmer family, everything is living and dying on the farm. And so there Indeed. really isn't any beginning and ending there. It's, it's that um, con continuum uh, right. that represents, if you were raised in that, um, living and dying really aren't that much of a big deal. And I guess that's right. what the Stoics were trying to get at. Well, the Epicureans and Stoics did also, but in a different way. But the Epicureans, what you just described, that would be very close to the way they, they thought about it. We are a, a point on a continuum. And when we when we give up the ghost, um, you know, our atoms are just being re reabsorbed back into the universe to create more life. So, you know, the idea of pushing up daisies, you know, literally mm -hmm. a good farming metaphor or horticultural metaphor for, uh, you know, for death. That was their philosophy. Um, or at the core of their philosophy. Well, and, and in fact, I, I, I should also say, just because I, it, it tickles me every time I think about it, that I call that section in the book, that translation from Lucretius, uh, the philosophy of compost. Um, and Walt Whitman has a wonderful poem in Leaves of Grass called This Compost, and he expresses just the same sort of uh, amazement we've been talking about of how, you know, wonderful things can come from decay, you know, he says, like, the, you know, the blackberries are so flavorous and juicy that come out of, you know, dead people, right, in the ground um, or, or dead things in the ground. And some of those, those, the dead are, could be criminal. They could have committed terrible crimes. You know, they could have been abominations upon the earth, but yet they disintegrate and they become something that can become something beautiful and useful and enjoyable. If conditions permit, I would guess. Um, and another person you bring up is Marcus Vero, uh, who brings up mm -hmm. the whole business of raising animals. And, and today, you know, we face a lot of anti-animal sentiment, mm -hmm. anti-animal agriculture sentiment. Um, and yet Vero talks about um, that relationship that we share with animals, and of course you ha happen to bring up uh, Temple Grandin, because mm. if anybody understands that relationship better than her, I don't know who that would be. I, I agree. So Vero, who's Vero? Yeah. 
So yeah, Vera was one of these Thomas Jefferson kind of characters who, um, you know, was a public servant. He was he was a, a, one of the, the makers and shakers of um, late Republican Rome, um, served in the army, held the high offices. But his, his real avocation was um, uh, antiquities. You know, for him, antiquities meant going back to the beginning, but to, to study the past, to study language, to study myth and history and, and farming. So he, he wrote a, a, a farming manual. It doesn't survive in toto, but it, uh, we have a good, a good enough chunk to get a sense of what it was like called uh, Res Rusticae, Country Matters. And um, he dedicates this, this volume to his wife, Fundania, who, whose name actually means Mrs. Farmer, translated from Latin. Um, she must be younger than he is. Vero's approaching 80 when he writes this work, Res Rusticae. And in the dedication, he, she's, she has bought her own farm, her own you know, estate, a villa. And she's looking for some advice, or at least is the, maybe this is just the specious occasion to open the book, but she's looking for some advice from Vero on how to run it. And um, so the occasion, that's the occasion for which Vero then delves into um, a, uh, it's not a treatise so much, it's a dialogue between speakers uh, who were well-known at the time, sort of imitative of platonic dialogue um, to talk about farming. And, um, and, and he, he, he preserves can you, everything. Can you hold, from... hold on to that? We're going to take a quick break, but it's getting very rich here. We're going to be talking about animals and uh, what Vero thought about them when we get right back. You stay tuned. Right. You can earn a substantial income by farming for the city. All you need to do is take your crop to market and win the competition for the consumer dollars. There is a well-proven strategy for winning this competition. You will find it embedded in Metro Farm, the guide to growing in or near the city for the city. Court Ideas, Greg Williams. There's a tremendous amount of useful information in Metro Farm for farming in or near the city. Acres USA's Charles Walters. Metro Farm tells how to convert an opportunity into a real going concern. Every chapter is organized around the logic of practicality. For every problem needing a solution, Metro Farm offers a progression of steps arranged in sequence so the desired goal is achieved. Before you plant your seeds, pick up a copy of the Ben Franklin Book of the Year award-winning Metro Farm. Then plant your seeds and win the dollars. MetroFarm.com. MetroFarm.com. When you buy local American-grown flowers, flowers will grow and flourish in America. Hello, I'm Deborah Prinzing, author of Slow Flowers for Certified American-Grown Flowers. When you buy local flowers, you're helping our country's family farms reduce the transportation footprint of flowers and enjoy fresher, longer-lasting bouquets. So please, next time you shop for flowers, think local. Think Certified American-Grown Flowers. Visit AmericanGrownFlowers.org to learn more. Hi, folks. How many of you out there love to garden? Wouldn't it be nice to grow some of your own food? Or maybe a flower garden would brighten your day. Well, now you can have the pleasures of gardening without all that effort. You don't need a tractor. You don't need a rototiller. All you need is the Knox Garden Box, a heavily constructed portable elevated garden on legs that can virtually change the way you've gardened in the past. The Knox Garden Box can be set up anywhere. Yes, you can place it right on concrete. For those with bad backs, you've got critters and gophers, no space or maybe no dirt, 
With the Knox Garden Box, the therapy of garden is now the prescription for good mental health. The way to find your fabulous Knox Garden Box is by logging on to KnoxGardenBox.com. That's K-N-O-X GardenBox.com. Or by calling 831-461-9430. Business owners, get money you need in two to three days at BusinessMoneyToGo.com. Business Money To Go is a network of reputable small business lenders that compete to lend you money. When you qualify with a one-page application, Business Money To Go will get you the best loan at the best rate in two to three days. Get five to $500,000 in two to three days at businessmoneytogo.com. Businessmoneytogo.com. So much to say, so little time to say it. On the food chain with Michael Olson. So much to talk about. An antiquity filled with very, very interesting things to talk about. Because it's essentially the same things we talk about today. Folks have been running up and down the food chain for, you know, best part of three three decades. And exploring this and exploring that. And uh, yet, you know, when I open up How to Be a Farmer... Uh, and and scan through the subjects uh, MD Usher puts on the table for us to consider. It seems like just about everything that is in that book uh, are the things that I talk about and, and come to grips with in, mm-hmm. in my perusal of today's food chain. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it seems to me like the more things change, uh, the more they stay the same because what they wrote about Two three thousand years ago, is pretty much the same. Um, does that uh, just amaze you? Do you find a continuing source of amazement in that, Professor? Well, it encourages me because um, it, it it means we have um, a resource beyond the present and beyond the future, which we we don't know yet, to uh, to have recourse to. Um, you know, and I think it's important for understanding the present to, I said this before, to look away, especially to the past. We, we find ourselves, um, I think, in, incorrigible presentists. We, we find ourselves uh, always thinking that we, what's happening now is the most important or what, what's happening now is actually new when in fact it's not. It's a version of something that as humans have either thought up before or tried before. And that's one of the advantages of studying the past is that it uh, it further elucidates the present, so we know how we got here. Um, and it doesn't mean that we take take things from the past wholesale. For instance, um, you know, uh, Roman farms were run primarily by slaves, um, uh, doing the you know the hard uh, graft of of farming, not exclusively, but you know, in different periods in Roman history as the Roman Empire expanded. It became more so that way, and large farms became uh, more of a feature on the Roman landscapes. Very large farms; we would call them factory farms. Yeah, and that's something no, that's something that yeah. you put on the table with Pliny the Elder. Yeah, Pliny the Elder, right? Yeah, yep. t- tell us about him, Pliny the Elder. Okay, good. So uh, Pliny is writing uh, in the you know first century A.D. Um, Pliny was a uh, a naturalist in the best sense of the word. He was interested in everything that had to do with um, nature and consequently that had to do with biological life and earth and nature in general. 
Um, he uh, actually died in the, uh, during the eruption of Vesuvius because he got too close to, uh, to the action because he, was, he, was, he wanted to see it. He wanted to study it. He wanted to observe it and take notes. So he's sort of a, you know, an early martyr for, for, um, for science. But um, his passage that you're, I think you're referring to uh, in the context of these large factory farms that, that sprung up in the, in the, you know, it was a, a long process over hundreds of years that led to ultimately these large farms, but they're called latifundia. These just like expanse, that literally just means expansive farm. And, um, you know, from his vantage point in the early empire, he's and writing, you know, just after the reign of the emperor Nero, he saw this as a, a bad development because it was a, a, a departure from, you know, the, the good old days, quote unquote, of Republican Rome, where farms were run by the people who owned them, for one thing, and, and, and worked by the people who owned them. And that those people were citizens, first and foremost, they were citizens, soldier, farmers. So he, um, he decries the, the, um, the rise of latifundia, these large factory farms, that are were run by slave, you know, chain gangs of slaves, and he has a beautifully evocative passage where he says, "Like Mother Earth, no wonder these days." He says, "These days being, you know, 70 CE. These days, it's no wonder we don't get the same sort of produce and profit from a farm because the people who work it are doing so against their will. So why would Mother Nature want to cooperate there? She's she actually takes a front at that kind of that kind of, uh, you know." uh abuse of of the riches that she supplies so it's a it's a it's a romanticized notion but it's also a, an ideology i think that uh many in the new new foods movement and small farming movement today would uh, also subscribe to it's it sounds exactly the same hmm. so what so what Pliny the elder was complaining about way back then so many of us are now complaining about today those those big factory farms those confined animal feeding operations were were so ter are so terrible um, but back then of course they used slaves and today the slaves are essentially chemicals and money uh, yeah but the same thing is is that we look at these giant farms uh, and complain that they're not producing what we would like to eat uh, but yet we're not willing to go out and grow what we want to eat. So there we are. Um, right. Let's go back to Vero and, and the animals, because that's another thing that we've been mm. complaining about a lot these days is the uh, relationship with animals. And there are many who suggest that we should not have that relationship with animals, that we should stick with having that relationship with just plants. Mm. Uh, so what did Vero point out? about our relationship with animals. Yeah, well, well Vero just, he, he uh, you know, as an antiquarian, he, he just can't help himself to, you know, uh, delve into the past and, 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 and look for interesting tidbits and details um, that he finds surprising, amazing, intriguing. And what he says in the passage that I include in the book is that, you know, people have been living with animals for a very long time. You know, uh, and, and it's just, it's just it's a historical fact. It's a you know paleoarchaeological fact. So we have 
been interacting with animals. Uh, you know, we domesticated wild animals, but they also domesticated us. So he, he, he makes arguments like, you know, you, you see, you know, you see animal language everywhere, even in our social structures of, of ancient Rome, Pharaoh says. So anyone who is trying to say that animals aren't intrinsic to our own, you know, our own way of living in the world, our own uh, means of subsistence and, and farming uh, have got it wrong. So, you know, the Latin word for money, pecunia, comes from the Latin word pecus, which means livestock, because lo and behold, once upon a time, it was, you know, it, wealth was valued in, in terms of livestock. You've got myths, Pharaoh says, about the golden fleece uh, and these massive heroic quests like Jason and the Argonauts traveling to Colchis to obtain the golden fleece, um, which is essentially, you know, wool, <laughs> special right. wool on a, on a ram. So he, he's pointing out that humans have, have seen their interdependence with animals as intrinsic to their own develop, historical and, and cultural development for a long time. And I, I think it's it's still true. Um, we domesticated animals, but they also domesticated us. Um, and um, it's it's uh, they do have a place on 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 the farm and within a farming ecosystem. Um, the question is, you know, how many and uh, in and how to how to raise them. And um, so there 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 more questions of particulars, I think, in solving contemporary problems rather than. Um, sure. Whether or not they belong, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Then we go back to sounding like Pliny the Elder complaining about factory farms, right? Mm -hmm. There. Well, you talk. You bring up uh, several good, good snippets about Horus. Uh, one of which uh, was the reverie of a would-be farmer. Mm -hmm. The other was simple tastes, and the third is avoiding the rat race. Who was mm -hmm. Horus? So Horace was a, a poet um, and uh, a philosopher. We think he was kind of an Epicurean in his own leanings. Um, so he had a view of life that uh, was, you know, that we should live an untroubled life, avoiding, um, you know, the, the problems of urban living and, and friendship was important to him, you know, pleasure, but in moderation because excessive pleasure does no one any good. This, this is all a, kind of the Epicurean package um, that, you know, appears throughout his works, all of his poems. So he, he's a reflective poet, but he's a, a poet primarily. So the three passages that I include, well, actually, one other thing about Horace is that he was given a farm in the Sabine Hills by his patron and friend, um, Mycenas. But he, so, be, before that, he he kind of went bankrupt as a soldier, as I understand it. Not not so much Horace himself, um, but uh, well, maybe, uh, perhaps. But I'm not sure if you, yeah, uh, I wouldn't vouch necessarily for for that particular detail. But okay. but the the point is is that he um, all Roman poets relied for their livelihoods on the patronage of you know more substantial, uh, influential politicians. So you have a dynamic in Roman poetry where, you know, you're, you're trying to please and keep your patron interested in what you're saying in your poetry. Uh, 
but also to you know talk about the the real issues of of modern life through this mytholog this lens of sort of mythological language and old stories that have been reused with new meaning. So in one of the poorest passages that you mentioned, you know, I think it's the uh, uh, getting out of the rat race. I forgot what I actually called it. Um, is a very famous like uh, fable that Horace includes in one of his poems about the town mouse and the country mouse. And it's a, it, the, the story is perfect because it's a story as Horace presents it told by guests at his villa who are being wined and dined one evening um, in the Sabine Hills, relaxing, enjoying an evening. Um, and it's a sort of after dinner party time where people tell stories to one another and it's all convivial. And one of the attendees tells the story of the town mouse and the country mouse, uh, which serves as a parable also for Horace's own choices in life. And that is, you know, the, 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 the city mouse goes to visit his friend in the country, is fed this humble fare and rough living and totally unpleasant as far as the, the urban mouse is concerned. And then the country mouse goes to visit the, the town mouse and the town mouse thinks he's throwing, you know, this wonderful feast and treating him lavishly and thinks he's going to be all impressed. But, you know, the country mouse basically says, I'd rather be back on the farm and, um, and packs up and, and scuttles out. So, uh, yeah, Horace, his poetry is full of this sort of tension between country living and, and urban living. Uh, and he lived both worlds. And he just states his preference being, if I could, if I had my druthers, I'd be on my Sabine villa. And I guess a lot of us would when it gets right down to it. And, and that's why you're on a farm, right? Well, to be honest, I have to say I was pretty susceptible and impressionable to what I was reading when I was younger and I was studying the classics as a undergraduate and then a graduate student. And uh, yes, I took it to heart. And, you know, we, we made choices to, um, to to pursue that kind of life. I mean, we always kind of called it plan B, but in fact, it was it was really plan A. And uh, the academic thing was plan B. I'm glad they both worked out. Um so we we actually you know built our own house and outbuildings and we you know you know put up all our own fences and um, we started from scratch with no real background in farming only the idea so it was a pay as you go basis and a learn as you go basis and we're we're grateful twenty years later you know we have a farm with a hundred sheep uh, five six cows uh, two donkeys chickens, uh, you know, the usual. We've had pigs in the past before. So we've learned a lot um, by living close to the land and, and living with animals and, and, and trying to follow that, that hesiotic advice you mentioned at the very beginning of the show of, you know, th thinking for yourself and being self-sufficient, but also listening to the good advice of others. You'd be a fool not to. So it's been this constant trial and error learning process of, Sure. You know, getting good input and, and just working hard. But it seems to me your greatest crop has been your children. <laughs> you mean my actual children or all my students? Well, both. But I was thinking of your actual children because you raised them on a farm and you homeschooled them. Oh, yeah, it's true. 
Oh, okay. I didn't know that you knew that, but yeah. So I can tell you that that kind of story in a very uh, in short space. Um, and it's sort of like uh, you may have heard the story. We were just talking about the town town mouse and the country mouse before. You've heard this, the story of the if you give a mouse a cookie sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how we got into <laughs> into farming and doing what we do. So my wife and I got married young, uh, as things go today. I was twenty; she was seventeen. Uh, it wasn't a shotgun wedding. It was a all planned and um, by choice. We three years later, we had our first uh, ch- child, a uh, boy, and we decided, well, you know, if we're going to take on the decision and uh, the responsibility of actually having a child, we should probably like birth that child ourselves, too. So we had home births for all three of our boys subsequent to that. Um, and then we asked ourselves and like the same sort of logic or maybe illogic um, if we're going to have them and if we're going to birth them ourselves we had a midwife that came to halt to the house and helped us of course um, we should we should be responsible primarily for educating them why would we want to like surrender them to somebody else or to a, a herd of you know herd thinkers so and, that's what and led to the homeschooling that, and with that we just ran out of time But I would like to point out that all three of your sons have grown up to be self-sufficient, independent thinkers, just like their parents. Thank you so much for joining us. M.D. Usher, professor of classical languages and literature, the University of Vermont, a farmer and the author of this incredible book, How to Be a Farmer. Thank you, Professor. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with Michael Olson. And if your friends miss the show, tell them to log on the Food Chain page at metrofarm.com for a listen. Now, go out and find some food with its farmer's face on it and live.